with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And usually it's Trudy on a Thursday morning, but she's a little bit delayed today as she double booked. Uh, uh, how can you double book for something at 9 o'clock in the morning? That just sounds silly. Uh, so our special guest this morning is John Rustad. Uh, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia and a member of the Legislative Assembly here in B.C. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. So before we get uh, to the hard-hitting questions, which Trudy is hoping to be here in time for, uh, although I, I don't know, does she really ask hard-hitting questions? She's she's a fan of yours. Well, so I, I can tell you, I've, I've talked to Trudy personally, yeah. and she's asked me some pretty tough questions. So uh, Well, yeah, yeah. She uh, doesn't necessarily hold your feet to the fire, but she throws stuff at you that you, you start really makes you think, right? Yeah, no question. And we've delved into some issues. Last time I had a, a chance to be on the show right. here, and then uh, went into quite quite a bit of detail on it. And so, you know, yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. No, for sure. So, first off, let's get a little bit of background. Rustad, a well-known name in the central interior of British Columbia. Uh, you were born here. Yeah, I was born and raised in Prince George. Uh, you know, I've lived my whole life in northern BC. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2009, when my riding changed from Prince George, Amanika to uh, Nechaco Lakes, I moved out to Klukas Lake with my wife okay. um, so that we could make sure that we lived in the riding that we right. represent. And it's just, you know, you don't have to live in your riding, but, you know, in, in this area and this particularly throughout rural BC, um, you know, people like to know that you're there, that you're connected uh, to the communities that you represent. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly gives you a sense of what's going on in the riding as well, right? Well, it gives you a better sense, a better idea of what's going on, but it's just... And, you know, the, for example, the people in uh, in Burns Lake won't necessarily want to be represented by somebody from Prince George. Right, Just like exactly. the people in Prince George wouldn't want to be represented by somebody from, say, Dawson Creek. Right. So you, so you mentioned Klukas Lake is in the Nechaco Lakes. Where, where's the boundary? So the boundary actually starts about uh, uh, 60 kilometers west of Prince George, so straight at the regional district boundary just before you get to Klukas Lake. So oh. that's where that's where the my riding starts, and then okay, that would be is that sixty or is that more like thirty? No, it's about that's sixty. 50. Well, maybe okay. maybe fifty five or whatever. Right. Yeah, but, okay. but yeah, so then uh, it's and then it goes uh, past Houston. So it's got right. about two hundred sixty kilometers of Highway sixteen, and actually as a riding, it is about two point two times the size of Vancouver Island. Oh wow! But only with th about thirty two thousand people in yeah. it. So it's um, you know a very rural riding. Yeah. Uh, it's largest community, of course, being Vancouver with around forty five hundred people. So most of your constituents are actually bears and. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that actually I'm very fortunate because I, I think the people in my riding uh, are great. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're down to earth. They're sort of no nonsense, very practical people. And uh, so it's been a real pleasure having yeah. uh, the chance to represent them. Just 32,000, you know them all by first name, right? Well, maybe not all of them by first name, but uh, <laughs> Quite a few. I do try to get around in the riding. But of course, with taking on the role now of the leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, uh, I'm really not able to spend as right. much time as I'd like to in my riding, yeah. um, which has been a challenge, but it is what it is as I try to build the, the coalition that we need uh, around the province to challenge for government. Okay, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, last name, Rustad, Rustad Sawmill. Is there a connection there? What's the connection? If uh, there is it a is a, so we are related, but it's a, it's a, a distance relation okay. in terms of it. Uh, my family was in the sawmilling business uh, mm -hmm. for many years um, and, uh, of course, uh, very involved in forestry throughout that period of time. 
but not one of the Rustad brothers. Not directly in, in terms of that. But however, Rustad brothers actually bought out uh, our sawmilling operations oh, okay. uh, many decades ago. Well, there you go. Okay, so uh, so you grew up in the forest industry then. Yes. Yeah. And you worked in the forest industry as a yeah, young so man? Yeah, I, I worked uh, sort of uh, through work career. I, I worked uh, doing everything from tree planting to um, timber supply analysis. I've done, uh, you know, block layouts and uh, various analysis in the in the woods, reconnaissance work, as well, of course, as all of the, the, the technical work when I actually had my own company. I had right. an office in Houston, an office in Prince George. Um, and, uh, you know, a dozen employees working with me. That was life before uh, I made the decision to go into politics. What, what did your company do? What did you specialize in? So the company was provided uh, geographic information systems analysis work for okay. the resource sector. So, like I say, did everything from timber supply analysis to watershed analysis, um, through to development plans and, of right. course, uh, you know, a wide range of other services. So it's almost a, a forest, a forestry engineer, perhaps? Well, it's, or... it, it's more of a, more forestry planning okay. uh, as opposed to um, the, the engineering side right. you know we really provided all the data that that fed into decisions that companies would make uh, around uh, around harvesting and around their their overall strategic planning right okay so transition from that into politics how did that come about well in the year 2000 um, I was so concerned about where things were going with the province of British Columbia that I actually sat down with my wife and I said what do you think about moving to Calgary Oh, taking the company and uh, and you know shifting the focus to resource sector in Alberta, um, and so we had a long talk about it. Uh, and because I mean, realistically, you know, the province here was was really struggling. Taxes were high, yeah. very similar to what we have today. Yes. Um, versus what was going on in Alberta. What a and strange coincidence! A strange coincidence. Happens to be the same government. Yes, yeah, an NDP <laughs> government. Um, and ultimately, you know, my whole family was in Prince George, and and my wife's parents were in Prince George, and. You know, we're involved in various other things, and we thought, you know, we didn't want to be chased out of our province that we love. Mm-hmm. And so that left me two choices. I either had to live with it or get involved and try to change it. Right. And so that's what I decided to do. And politics was never an ambition of mine. It was never, uh, you know, something that I wanted to do. But uh, uh, I found now, of course, now that I'm involved in politics, I actually enjoy it, which is kind of odd, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And so I... My my whole objective here now, certainly with what I'm doing as the Conservative Party, is is very similar. You know, I could have just left politics. Right. Um, you know, I could run as an independent, but I want to try to make change in this province because I don't like the way things are going. Right. right, I, I, right. I don't like policies that are, you know taxing people into poverty. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. We need to be uh, aggressively looking at a different approach for this province. Yep. Okay, well, let's talk about your early years in, in politics because uh, you weren't a member of the Conservative Party when you started. No, that's right. I was, when I was first elected, I was, I was elected, uh, I was actually a school trustee for three years, but then I was elected um, as uh, an MLA uh, under the BC Liberal banner. Mm-hmm. And the BC Liberal banner back when I joined it was really a coalition. And it was, you know, there were free votes. Uh, you're able to speak up uh, on a wide variety of issues. Um, that has all changed. Okay. But during that time, so, uh, you know, I served as Minister for Aboriginal Relations and Reconciliation for just over four years, signed 435 agreements with First Nations. We did a lot of work on reconciliation, which I was very proud of. I also spent a very short time as uh, Minister for Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations. Then in 2017, when we were in opposition, um, I became critic for forest lands and natural resource operations right up until uh, the time when uh, I got booted out of the uh, BC Liberal Party. 
Party, which, of course, is now called the United Party. So how did that come about? Can you spill any beans on that? Sure. So what ended up happening was uh, back in December of 2021, the federal government put out a paper called the Farm Emissions Reduction Strategy. Mm -hmm. And essentially what they want to do is stop cows from farting and belching (laughs) because they figure that's going to change the weather, right? Right. They want also uh, you'll significantly reduce the use of nitrogen-based fertilizer uh, and stop emissions from farms. Mm -hmm. So. 35% of the economic activity in my riding is agriculture, and that would have a very negative impact on, on my, uh, on my riding. So I discovered, I I didn't even hear about this until April, uh, of 2022. And so, uh, I asked for a discussion in caucus on this issue. I said, look, we, we, we really need to revisit our policy and our approaches on, on climate. Mm And so, uh, okay, we'll put it on agenda. Well, April went by, no discussion. Asked again. May went by, no discussion. It was supposed to happen in June. June went by, no discussion. It was supposed to be in a planning session in July. That got cancelled. And so, the submissions had to be in by September. Oh yeah. For the on this federal paper. So that's when I decided. I started doing a little more research and looking around, and I saw a very interesting quote by Patrick Moore a tweet by Patrick Moore on, on the issue, and it sort of questioned the role of CO2 and, and had some very inf- interesting information about the Great Barrier Reef. So I retweeted it. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't think anything of it. Um, you know, two days later, three days later, suddenly my phone lights up, and I was taking the day off. The next day was my birthday. And okay. so I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to leave it, right? right? Leave it alone. So that night I looked and saw the messages and, of course, found out that everybody was upset about what I'm doing and I needed to get in touch with people. So I, I sent a note to the leader and said, you know, what time would you like to talk tomorrow? And so this was uh, now on the, on the Thursday, which is now my birthday, uh, <clears throat> in August. And so I thought, okay, call the leader. And he said, you know, he was angry and I, I get it, right? And he's got an issue, he doesn't want to be put off by a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he said, you know, you got to take down this tweet. And I said, what tweet? Well, that tweet you put out. I said, what what tweet? The retweet. Oh, the retweet. Mm-hmm. It wasn't yeah. even anything I'd originally said, right? right? It was just the retweet. And and I said, why? And he said, well, because, you know, you know what our policies are. So I explained the situation, said I needed to be able to have a voice for my riding. And uh, uh, he said, no, sorry, that's unacceptable. You know the rules. You have to parrot our party position on climate. Uh, you're not allowed to say anything else. I said, I'm sorry. Uh, but I was elected to represent my my riding, so he said, "Okay, fine," and hung up on me. And half an hour later, I was kicked out of caucus. Hmm. So, what exactly was in the tweet that uh, got them upset? Well, it, what it did, it showed some evidence that CO two may not be the the sole driver of uh, of uh, you know changing climate, changing temperatures, and then it had a, a bunch of uh, information about the health of the Great Barrier uh, right. Reef. Yeah. And so um, the issue for uh, Mr. Falcon and the United Party was they wanted to be leaders in fighting climate change, and they did not want to have anything that would suggest that perhaps um, the um, the role of of carbon tax uh, should not be should not be done. And not like I say, I look at the carbon tax and I say, really? You, when you really look at what the carbon tax is doing, 50% of the people in this province are struggling to put food on the table. Yeah, on the table. Yeah. I mean, it's taking billions of dollars out of people's pockets. It's taxing people into poverty. And to do what? It's not changing anything. And it will not. It's not physically possible for a tax to have changed anything. But... You know, this, uh, the United Party is uh, dead set on their, their policy and approach that they want to be leaders in fighting climate change. And 
So that's where that's where the big divide came. Yeah. So uh, well, with the carbon tax, don't they take that money and buy? proper uh temperatures for the climate isn't that how that works <laughs> uh well uh what it currently is doing is it's actually going into the uh, ndp general revenue and being used for exactly. uh, a slush fund for their pet projects that they want to yeah. do and yeah. so it's it's achieving nothing and and even you know you look at it and people you know we should people saying we should move to electric vehicles okay so let's let's maybe have a look at something realistic about electric vehicles so British Columbia consumes 1,343 petajoules of energy a year. And a petajoule is just a very large number. Uh-huh. Only 16% of that, one-six, is electricity. 84% is fossil fuels. 30% of the energy we consume is for transportation. That's right. all of our boats and trains and planes and cars and everything that we do. Yeah. So if you wanted just to replace fossil fuels in transportation, you would need to triple the amount of energy, the electricity that we produce in this province. That's the equivalent to building 20 site C dams. So let's have a realistic conversation yeah. about where we're going to go as opposed to just saying you can't buy an internal combustion engine by 2035. Yeah. I mean, you're essentially saying that the vast majority of people in this province will not have a vehicle. Yeah. And that yeah. just, that's just wrong. Not to mention, what will it do for electricity rates and affordability? Well, it might uh, solve the traffic problem in Vancouver, though. <laughs> you know, I kind of wonder about that because I look at it and think, okay, so they're replacing the Patella Bridge, a four-lane bridge, with a four-lane bridge. Mm-hmm. They're going to replace the Massey Tunnel, a four-lane tunnel, with a four-lane tunnel. Yeah. So is that telling me that they actually intentionally want to reduce the number of vehicles on the road? Is that telling me, you know, that their yeah. vision is that a decade from now we won't need that much capacity because people won't own vehicles? Well, there'll be some bike lanes, I guess, eh? Maybe. I, I, I like to see people, uh, you know, trying to bike in from Surrey into Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps there'll be... Some uh, people some people yeah. can, but for well, the average person, it might be a little challenging. No, for sure. And I, I guess the uh, the um, oxymoron that we keep running into is is the, the opponents of the Site C are the ones that are very much for the electric vehicles. So yeah. it kind of doesn't make sense. You know, I, I'm actually all for trying to use more electricity in our economy. You know, eleven percent of our energy, ten, eleven percent of our energy that we consume is for is is our residential. About eleven, twelve percent is commercial. About fifty percent is, uh, uh, you know, is is uh, industrial. I'm all for trying to use as much electricity as we can, but let's have a realistic conversation in our society. When you start looking at at wind and solar, the cost structure there is pretty high and it's unreliable. So now you need to back it up, and that adds tremendous amount of additional cost. So how are we going to generate this electricity? Yeah. So let's have that conversation. What should it be? What does that look like in terms of our grid? Where do we want our prices to be? How does that going to impact our economy? How does that impact you know the everyday lives of of individuals? Yeah. Right. It's it's not an unreasonable thing to ask that question. However, you know you bring it up and immediately like. You're attacked. You're assaulted by the the cancel culture. That's it's not the way I think people want to see this province run. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's kind of a multifaceted. Uh, you have to have a multifaceted approach because realistically, long term, the electrical needs of this province uh, will outstrip anything we can provide. You know, it's, and it's interesting. Um, this we there was legislation in place that forced. British Columbia to be energy self-sufficient in terms of our electrical needs. Mm. And uh, the NDP actually did away with that piece of legislation. They they eliminated it. Mm. And, and basically they've said, we're not going to be investing in more electrical generation in BC. Uh, we're just going to buy our power from Alberta and the United States. 
And I can tell you, if they ever run into a problem, serving us is not going to be their top priority. Yeah, yeah, we'll right? be I mean, which, which is ridiculous. Now, now, they are coming out with a new call for power in 2028, but uh, uh, realistically, you know, these big projects take five to ten years to put in place. Uh, and you're looking at where they're trying to go with heat pumps and with mm-hmm. uh, with electric vehicles. Um, we're not going to have the energy. We're not going to have the electricity we need to meet those needs unless we see a significant reduction in the number of vehicles on the road. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more. We're talking with John Rustad, the Conservative Party leader here in British Columbia. You ever thought to yourself, boy, it'd be nice to have a show that only features pop or rock into a from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the odd time a little bit nearer? Well, you fell in the place. Saturday evenings, 9 to 11, it's all the map with Jimmy James, and it's the show that does feature pop rock into a from those decades. There's also the 930-1970s feature track, the 10 o'clock double shot, and to put the wraps on every week's show, the final vinyl feature. So tune in Saturday evenings, 9 to 11. It's all the map of Jimmy James, only here at 930.1 CFISFM. First Student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to the family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics. Let First Student put you in the driver's seat. You'll need a full driver's license, clean record, must be safety-focused, and enjoy working with children. Apply online through workatfirst.com or call Christine at 250-900-8220. Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250-900-8220. Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open six days a week in the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Stop by and check out his great assortment of books, magazines, DVDs, and collectibles. Tuesday through Friday between 10 and 2. Ron's Hole in the Wall is also open during the Q3 Community Market, Saturday from 8.30 to 2. Drop in regularly as always something different in store. Ron's Hole in the Wall now open Tuesday through Saturday in the Q3 Creative Business Hub, downtown at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 60% chance of showers. Winds from the southwest at 30, gusting to 50, a high of 13. Partly cloudy tonight, gusting southwest winds becoming light this evening, a low of 2. For Friday, a mix of sun and cloud at a high of 9. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're speaking this morning with John Rustad, the Conservative Party of British Columbia leader and the uh, representative of Nechaco Lakes. And, uh, yeah, you've taken on a huge job uh, bringing the Conservative Party of British Columbia out of the woods, I guess you would say. Yeah, you know, most people don't realize that the Conservative Party of British Columbia is actually the oldest party in British Columbia's history. It was first uh, founded, I think, around 1903. Uh, it governed uh, for uh, many years. Uh, the last time it formed government was in 1927. Oh, wow. And so the last time it elected anybody in British Columbia was in the 1970s. And right. so it has been a uh, you know party that's been in the wilderness for a very long time. And, uh, however, you know, we've taken this party now from, uh, you know, somewhere between two and four percent polling provincially, uh, just over a year ago to now we're on 25 percent. And certainly throughout northern BC, the interior and many other regions of the province, we're actually leading. We're ahead of the, uh, the NDP and, uh, the United Party has slipped down to a third place with only, uh, you know, provincially 19 percent of the vote. Right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Conservative Party because, uh, when I grew up, the Social Credit Party 
basically was the quote-unquote conservative party, small C conservative party in BC. But that's changed over the years. So, and, and it, it melded into the Liberal Party, which has become the United Party. And how does that differ then from the Conservative Party? It is interesting. Um, and one thing I always say, uh, you know, with regards to the party is it's not really about being conservative or liberal or NDP or green. Um, it's about just standing for what's right and, mm. and just fighting for the average everyday person. And that's going to be the approach to how we address all of these issues. And whereas these other parties are all, you know, more ideologically driven, um, in, in terms of where the philosophies are. And quite frankly, the, the United Party now, which formerly Liberal Party, I like to call them United Liberals actually, but they're, they've moved so far to the left in the political spectrum that really all three other political parties are on the left. And from my perspective, three lefts doesn't make it right. Right. But historically, um, you know, British Columbia every decade or two goes through these kind of shifts. Uh, it was the Conservative Party that, you know, then into the 30s, it became the Liberal Party. And then into the 50s, it became the Social Credit Party. Then you had a brief interruption in the 70s with NDP. Then it went back to being the the the, the um, uh, Social Credit Party, I should say. And then, of course, went to NDP for a decade. Then it went to Liberals for 16 years. And now it's back to NDP. Right. We see these shifts in in politics in British Columbia. And, you know, it's it's time, quite frankly, for a new coalition. The, the Liberal Party... You know, the United Party has got a lot of baggage. Um, you know, its leader is from, from a, a different era uh, in, in politics. And uh, quite frankly, I think people are looking for something very different. And that's what we're trying to offer as the Conservative Party of BC. Yeah, I kind of found it interesting, the change from the Liberal Party to the United Party and their stance, because it, it basically said, we're an umbrella party, to which I thought, well, then why even have a party? Yeah. Well, I look, I sort of looked at it from, from a perspective of, um, the, the name change was trying to hide their history. Right. Right. Ar- around who they were as a Liberal Party. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm actually proud of a lot of things that I was able to achieve when I was part of that party. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does have a lot of baggage. And the name change, um, you know, people are saying, well, you know, people just don't know who they are. The polling that we've so- seen is 65 to 70% of the people know who the United Party is. They just don't have decided not to support it right and uh, so in any case it, you know it's their approach in terms of how they're trying to to be that but you know the first thing that they did it was basically kick out conservatives out of their party huh. and and they've been doing that for quite some time in their in their desire to move you know to the far left and in right. their policy approaches and it's an it's unfortunate because really you know, that's why I say we need to be a coalition as well as the Conservative Party. It's not just about being conservatives. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that. We've seen people come over from the Liberals. We've seen people come over from the NDP, actually. Uh, matter of fact, uh, you know, one of our candidates uh, from uh, from the by-elections last summer uh, was a former NDP member. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, during that by-election, we actually came second in, in Langford with the United Party actually finishing a distant fourth even behind wow. the Green Party. Wow. Okay, well, let's talk about that, uh, the uh, candidates that have changed their stripes, become part of the Conservative Party. You're getting, you said, 25% support right now? Yeah, in, in, that, in that range provincially, right. and like I say, it varies by region. So the, the question then is, do you have, uh, can you see a, a quality lineup of candidates right across the province, because 25% support for the party is all well and good, 
but then it comes down to the actual constituency and the individual candidates. Of course. I mean, this is going to be a race for 93 different elections, right, in in terms of every riding. And we will be running candidates in every riding. And and we've got some very, very strong candidates that are stepping up to the plate and and wanting to be part of the part of who we are. And got many, many areas around the province. We have, uh, you know, multiple candidates that have entered in. So we'll be having some nomination races, uh, which is very healthy for for us as a party. Uh, Of course, our, our first candidate we announced up here uh, in case there was going to be an early by-election in, in Prince George Mackenzie um, was uh, uh, Rachel Weber, mm-hmm. uh, current uh, school board chair uh, here in uh, School District 57. Uh, we've got a number of, of councillors um, of uh, school district uh, representatives, um, mayors, former mayors uh, that have expressed interest in running. And so we're putting together a very interesting party uh, around this and you know, our goal is to um, is to continue to grow. Uh, obviously, who we are and, and what we're doing, continue to connect with people as we roll out more pieces of our platform, the things that we stand for. Um, and uh, you know, in 2024, we will be challenging the NDP for government. And it's it's hard to imagine taking a party that was in the wilderness and hasn't elected anybody from the 70s to actually having an opportunity to form government. But you know, that's where we're at. That's the trajectory we are on as the Conservative Party. Yeah, twenty four, uh, next year. That's right. That's that's how well, quick it is. And, so EB, EB keeps on promising that there won't be an election before October twenty twenty four. That's the the preset election date. Right. But you know, quite frankly, I don't trust him. And uh, he's come out and flip flopped on a number of things. Well, uh, and I don't trust his word. And and so I'm we're preparing uh, for the potential of an election in April. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing with uh, Canadian politics is, is you're always watching the polls to see when you want to call that election. Well, that's you know. In, in, the, in BC, we changed that to fixed yeah. election dates, but clearly, uh, fixed election dates aren't what the NDP have used, uh, since they immediately broke it, you know, the first opportunity they had in 2020 to hold an election. So, uh, clearly they've got a pattern here in terms of, uh, disrespecting democracy. And we're actually, we're seeing that through many of their policies and approaches. They're overriding municipalities, mm-hmm. uh, on, on things like housing and a number of other issues, uh, in Surrey policing, same sort of thing. Uh, they're very much an authoritarian type of, of government uh, that uh, really, you know, they think they know best. They think they know best in terms of educating children. Uh, it's, uh, you know, as opposed to parents. And, and it's not a great approach, I think, for this, for uh, for the British Columbia. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, go to another break. We're talking with John Rustad, the leader of the Conservative Party here in British Columbia. And we'll be back with uh, another topic that's worth discussing in a moment. The Prince George Council of Seniors Caregiver Support Program needs volunteers who have experience caring for seniors. If you are a retired nurse or caregiver and can offer some time to assist families and friends who are caring for their loved ones, contact the Seniors Resource Centre. Wendy is ready and willing to help you through the process. Call the centre at 250-564-5888 or email hcn at pgcos.ca. You can also stop at the Centre at 1330 5th Avenue. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes. Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? 
Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. Are you thinking of selling your business? It's Dave Fuller here, a business coach and a business broker living right here in Prince George. The challenge of being a business owner is that much of our retirement funds are often tied up in the business. If you are getting ready to retire and sell your business, give me a call, 250-617-7467, and we can talk confidentially about how much your business might be worth and how you might be able to get that money out of the business and into your pocket. Again, Dave Fuller, 250-617-7467, or check out our website, pivotleader.com. At Pivot Leader, we help you grow, train, and sell your business. North Edge Ice Sports has moved. You can now find all your recreational and competitive figure skating skates and accessories at Quebec and 3rd. While there, purchase roller skates or inline skates so you can skate all year round. Stop by and check out the assortment of outfits and accessories as you get ready for the coming season. Open from 10 to 5, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, 9 to 2, Saturday. North Edge Ice Sports, in the Q3 building, Kitty Corner, to the Farmer's Market at Quebec and 3rd. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right. Now the, uh, the the supposed to be host of the program is back. I'm Trudy. Uh, thank you so much to Reg for filling in for me. I was... I was um uh, I was up at UMBC um, talking to a group of uh, planning students and uh, part of a political panel or p- part of a panel there, and I had made a mistake in looking at my calendar. Well, these things happen, Trudy, but uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you, John. I really do appreciate that very much. Um, and so I was listening to the program as I was driving down, and uh, just appreciated uh, some of the history there. That's just really interesting. Um, so one question that I have, and 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 I'll tell you the reason I didn't cancel cancel on on uh, that previous engagement was because it's young people, yes, and they're so incredibly, it's so incredibly important that we that 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 we include them in in our planning. And so what from your perspective, and I and I recognize that young people, their political ideas are still developing and everything. And so I'm not somebody who thinks that. That we have to um, that we develop policy by 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 listening to what young people are saying now, but I but I necessarily, but but I think it's really important that we think to the future. And so, what are some of the uh, your plans? Sure. Well, actually, you know, one of the interesting things when we'll be doing some polling is we are actually polling very, very strong with 18 to 35, is which that? is really unusual because you think because, you know, conservative, you know, as, as a brand doesn't tend to connect with those people as much. But part of that is, uh, you know, we just we're just out talking plain talk. We're just out, you know, wanting to stand for what's right and fighting for the fighting for average person. But you think about a young person today coming out of school, um, going into university or coming out of university. Our economy uh, is projected by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to be the worst in the developed world, not just for, for the next year, not even for the next decade, for, for the next 40 years, okay, at just, just an just, anemic just, 0.7% GDP after inflation. And so if you think about it, what that means is for those young people, uh, that means that their quality of life will be in decline for the next 40 years, the next two generations of of kids. And that to me is completely unacceptable. We need to be changing that. We need to be fighting for that, for that, those good paying jobs. We need to be finding out, try pushing to how we actually increase our wages so that people can start to afford things again. So that really resonates with me because I think we underestimate how much, 
so much of what we hear in the media is doom and gloom, right? And, uh, and I think we forget that young people still want to live a life. And if we have no positive message for them, then, um, then that takes, so, so do you think, do you see yourself like, and maybe, do you think that maybe part of the reason that you've got quite good support in the 18 to 35 year olds is because your platform and, and your ideas are a little bit more hopeful than maybe the other? Well, I, I think. Or maybe more practical? I think really what it comes down to is, you know, people have gotten tired of what's currently happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a, a jurisdiction right now, we're running a $6.7 billion deficit, right? We've got some, we've got the highest taxes in, in the country. Um, you know, particularly when you think about carbon tax and how punishing that is for people and half the people in this province are struggling to put food on the table. You know, you look at the average, uh, the average student that comes out into the workforce. I mean, they've got very little hope to be able to buy a home in many regions of this province because of the cost structure. There is, you know, people coming out there they're wondering what is our future do i need, need to leave the province and that's you know we're, we need to do is we need to th- we need to shift that we actually need to create uh, an environment where people want to live here people want to invest here uh, we want to be able to attract the capital but most importantly we want to actually be focused on people's quality of life and improving it as opposed to what we're current what we're currently hearing for both the ndp and quite frankly the bc united party which is policies that are not focused on improving quality of life. So, so what are you what are you offering as your as your main ideas around that? Well, we're going to be rolling out a bunch of things, of course, uh, as I we get closer to the election, um, <laughs> yeah. because we can't we can't bring things out too fast. But I'll say one of the things you know, for example, that I look at is is um, the tax burden. Right? We need to be looking at lowering the tax burden on people. Things like the carbon tax. It it makes no sense. It's making no difference. Taxing people into poverty is not going to change the weather, right? We need to actually look at removing that just so that, you know, it helps not only for people to be able to get around in the affordability, but it helps businesses in terms of their ability to be able to, to move goods around, to be able to invest. Uh, so we need to be looking at how we as government can use the levers that we have to create a positive environment. On things like the economy, um, you know, that we've created so many layers of, of burden and bureaucracy, mm-hmm. it's virtually impossible. It takes like 168 days longer to build something like a warehouse than it does south of the border. And you look at it and you think, why? And this was that was from a study from a decade ago. It's only gotten worse. We need to actually get out of the way and allow for um, the kind of investment, particularly the investment in, in our workers. In the United States, excluding real estate, they invest about $55,000 per worker in terms of increasing productivity, increasing, you know, investment in them. And in Europe, it's about 33000 per worker. And in Canada, it's like 9000 That's got to change, right? Our productivity is falling behind. Oh, We're becoming yeah. uncompetitive. We need to see that kind of investments. So do you think for young people, uh, I mean, because what I, I always think, I mean, young people are our hope. And I think part of the reason is because each young person comes to us comes to the world with their own hopes and dreams of, and they want to all, they want to be contributing members of society. They want to have a family. They want to be part of what makes our country good. Yeah, they want to, want to live the Canadian dream. They want to be able to, to buy a home. They want to be able to, you know, uh, have uh, some money put away for, for their future. They want to be able to raise a family. They want to be able to have a quality of life. And we're seeing that decline. And I think that's what is, is just not there, right? We have to actually show them that there is a path. There is a path to a better future. Mm-hmm. So what do you, how do you, uh, and, I, and, I, and I realize you might not be able to give details, but 
in terms of the debt and the crushing debt that we have at the federal um, and provincial levels, and then also personal debt, what's just broadly, if you can, like, how do you see a path forward in getting out of that that so, habit? I mean, I would love to be able to say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna come in and have a balanced budget. But when you've got a government that's running a $6.7 billion deficit, you can't just come in and erase that immediately. It's no. going to take time. We're going to have to work at it. And on top of that, we do need to give tax relief to people. You know, removing the carbon tax by 20, by 2025, the carbon tax is, is, will be $4.5 billion in terms of the revenue it brings in for the, you know, slush fund for government projects. And I'm like, no, uh, that's wrong. So how we, you know, are able to bring down those taxes and get our deficit under control uh, is going to be a, a, a monumental task, and it's, and it's going to make making some tough decisions. But it can't just be about cutting spending; um, it has to be about growing our economy and growing our economy much faster. You know, I started off talking about the OECD prediction of just 0.7 percent GDP growth after inflation, uh, all the way through to 2060. We need to be dramatically improving that, and so we need to look at where we can generate that revenue. Things like LNG, things like use, using the natural resources that we have to be able to generate uh, the revenue and, and to really sort of grow the economy at a faster rate, and then use the room that we have to try to uh, drive, use tools that we have in the government to try to drive things like wage improvement and so uh, so that you know people can have a, an, and expect a better quality of life. Okay. All right. Well, it is time for a break. We'll be back after these messages. The Prince George Hospice Palliative Care Society has grief support services. Their family grief program supports grieving children, youth, and caregivers through three separate groups, and there's a children's drop-in offered every Tuesday from 3 to 4.30. Adult support services include one-on-one, tea time for the soul, and more. There's also a COVID long hauler program and coffee for the caregiver. Registration is required for all programs. For more information, visit the Hospice Society's website at pghpcs.ca. The Prince George RCMP has issued a warning after a rise in reported coyote attacks in the area. The RCMP asks that you please do not feed coyotes as it can habituate them to spending time around populated areas. To report coyote conflicts or the unlawful Lawful feeding of dangerous wildlife, call Conservation Officer Services at 1 877 952 7277. Call 911 only if a coyote is actively attacking. Golden Age socials are back for another season. Once a month through March, the City of Prince George, your Council of Seniors, and a host organization provide tea, coffee, snacks, table prizes, and decorations to enjoy an afternoon out of social interaction with other seniors. A great break for your well-being and mental health. The next Golden Age social of the season is Monday, November 6th from 1.30 to 2 at the Civic Centre. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 60% chance of showers. Winds from the southwest at 30, gusting to 50, a high of 13. Partly cloudy tonight, gusting southwest winds becoming light this evening, a low of 2. For Friday, a mix of sun and cloud at a high of 9. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, I'm here talking to John Rustad. Uh, John, you are uh, the leader of the BC Conservatives, and I just heard you as I was driving down talking to Reg about housing and how you feel that the provincial government's strategy of top-down housing policy is maybe not the best idea. Housing is a massive concern. It's, it's huge. We've seen... Uh, a tremendous underinvestment in housing. 
this government's approach and believe is that it should be all about government, mm. right? They're all about this socialist approach of, of, you know, government needs to provide everything. I completely disagree. There's room for that where government needs to step up and provide things, particularly Which assistance for, doing. well, exactly. <laughs> assistance in terms of, uh, you know, making housing affordable, um, for, uh, for low income and these types of things. However, um, what the government has basically done is created such a negative environment that we're not seeing the kind of capital investment that we need in housing. And so they're coming out and, and basically now trying to use uh, their legislative hammer to force municipalities to reach targets. Uh, they're overruling and, and overriding the autonomy of locally elected governments. Uh, I just I disagree with that in, in, in its approach. Uh, similarly, they came out with a recent policy around Airbnbs. The reason why Airbnbs are taking off is because these government policies have made it so difficult to actually have, you know, renters and, and that whole process that people are looking at thinking, I'm better off doing it as, uh, as an Airbnb as opposed and, to renting. And trying to make, use Airbnb as a way to meet their mortgage payments. Yeah, I, I exactly, right? And so I just look at it and think, the government's approach needs to change. What we really should be doing is we actually should be coming in with a package to be able to support communities to pay for the core infrastructures needed, water and sewer. I mean, no politician wants to stand on a sewer line and say, hey, look at me, vote for yeah. me, look what I delivered for you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the jokes would be endless. Um, but however, those are critical it's, it's components critical. that need to be done in a community if you're going to expand housing. So why don't we find ways to create incentives for communities to be able to expand on those core things that are needed so that they can then accelerate what, what's needed in terms of housing? So then where do you fall on the offloading? I mean, this is something that even before I ran for municipal office, um, I had heard lots about the increased offloading onto municipalities, especially uh, for all kinds of different costs. I mean, that's one of the big things here with in, in Prince George dealing with the homeless population is... Um, like the city doesn't have jurisdiction to tax for housing and we are, I don't think so. Um, and it's not in our, that's not our, uh, our policy like area. So our only option is just to, to, to try to work with BC housing and, and local providers. Where do you stand on, on what, well, I guess this is sort of segueing into a different question, the homeless issue. Yes. Uh, how long do you think it's going to be at the current stage in, in quite dire? And I mean, what, what's homeless, your proposal? Homeless numbers have skyrocketed. Yes, they under have. Under this NDP government, uh, and even under the, the previous government, right? Homelessness continued to go and, up. And how it's, much do you think brutal. has, how much do you think it has a connection to the housing, the lack of housing? But, so we're bringing in, you know, whatever it is, 150,000 people are in, into this province, 50 to 100,000 people, new people into this province for a year, and we're not keeping up with that kind of housing starts. No. So we've got, oh, we already have a shortfall. Yeah. We've got, you know, children that are graduating that want to go out um, and, and find their own place to live. We've got foreign students coming in uh, that's taking up a tremendous amount of housing, uh, you know, in terms of it as well as. So all of these things are contributing to the fact that we have this huge shortage of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worst part is, we're not addressing it from a perspective of actually, you know, this is a business opportunity. People should be investing in building housing, yeah. but they're not. So why aren't why are, they? Yeah. And they aren't doing it because government has created such a negative environment. And this, so, so I really look at it when you look at housing, uh, and particularly in the homeless, the homeless side of things. Yes, government needs to step up and provide support uh, for this, but we need to see that investment in communities. We need to see an environment where people want to actually create housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we're not doing it. What are the barriers that you're seeing for that? Because I, I know a few home builders, and and 
and um, I mean, I, and the margin, the, the margin for profit on building homes has re- decreased. So what do you think are the main obstacles there? So let's, let's just look at government policy. So they're building in a new building code. Bring in a new building code. That's going to add between twenty or between thirty-five and eighty thousand dollars to the cost of a new home. Just okay. just in terms of the cost. So how is that affordable for people? You're looking at um, you know <clears throat> you're looking at you know particularly for for the rental side, um, things have been so tipped. If you've got a, a challenge, if you've got a troubled uh, renter, you can't get rid of them. Mm-hmm. They're in there, and they may not even be paying the rent. And you just it, it's so difficult to actually deal with those. People are just looking at saying. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. Um, and then at the same time, of course, you know, you've got uh, uh, the cost of housing has gone up so much. Even things like the carbon tax, the cost of the carbon tax on materials, moving things around, building things, that all that's all an invisible cost that people don't see, but it's added into the cost of, of, of actually building and doing doing work in this province. So it's there's a whole wide range of things that are all have been layered in place. It's kind of like a cut by, you know, death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. uh, that are created very, very challenging for new housing markets. So you were um, saying earlier as well about talking about the, the carbon tax. What do you, th- so what was the intent and where was that money supposed to go and where is it actually going? It was, it was supposed to be revenue neutral, right? It was supposed to go back. So, so money came in, go back. So it was a what tax was shift. It was, well, it was, it was to try to prevent people from using fossil fuels and encourage them to use something else. But the reality is, since the carbon tax has been brought in place, which was in 2008, um, and, uh, and we have the highest gas prices in North America, we are still growing in our consumption of fossil fuels per capita this, at the same rate or a fast rate than every other province in the country. It is a complete failure. It, it, all it is doing is putting people into poverty. All it is doing is driving up costs. Yeah, because it's it's like um, because because carbon tax hits everything that we touch, right? Everything that we need. Eighty four percent of the energy we consume is fossil fuels. Only sixteen percent is electricity. So the carbon tax is on everything we do. It's hidden in so many other components, and that's why it it is such devastating blow to our economy and making us uncompetitive. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's time for another break again. So we'll be back after these messages. The City of Prince George has volunteer positions available to sit on the Prince George Heritage Commission. The board meets quarterly, and board members take part in heritage-related projects throughout the year. Applications can be submitted through the Permits and Applications link under City Services at PrinceGeorge.ca, at the Legislative Services Division on the fifth floor of City Hall, or by emailing Legislative Services at PrinceGeorge.ca. Application deadline is 5 p.m. today. Join Lori Ann Maley Bell for Sugar Skulls, a Halloween-themed watercolor workshop October 28th at Studio 2880. To register, call Lori at 780-720-3587. Cost is just $55. Bring the Halloween season to life with vibrant colors and patterns. Sugar Skulls, a watercolor workshop with Lori Ann Maley Bell. Saturday, October 28th from noon to 3 in the workshop zone on the second floor of Studio 2880. How would you interpret famous paintings such as the Mona Lisa or the Scream? If you're between the ages of 10 and 18, the downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library is giving you a chance to find out. October 24th is the next session of Famous Paintings, when the library gives young people the opportunity to interpret the old masters in a new way. It's a free drop-in event. Famous Paintings, October 24th from 3.30 to 4.15 at the downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library. 
Create your own beaded poppy pin during the next Beads and Bannock event at Two Rivers Gallery. Join Indigenous programmer Crystal Bend to create your own beaded poppy pin to honor Remembrance Day. Registration is available through the gallery. Everyone is welcome to enjoy freshly baked treats while learning traditional Native arts. Beads and Bannock, Beaded Poppies, Thursday, October 26th from 6 to 9 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, Trudy Claussen back with John Rustad. John, your first uh, question at in the legislature was was um, was interesting uh, in, in that I did hadn't heard that question quite directed at in, in, in the legislature previously. And of course, the premier was like, how dare you even talk about that? Uh, why did you talk about the need for maybe looking at, at BC uh, sex education curriculum differently? So soldiers become very, very divisive, right? It, it is, it is, uh, it's being used as a tool to prevent parents from being involved in their children's education. It is government's approach thinking that, you know, they are better at raising kids than, than families. Uh, but what it really speaks to, um, in this is that, you know, parents care about the raising of kids. Parents care about their kids' innocence. And they're concerned that this is actually, you know, taking that away. It's a, it's an assault on that. You know, we've got, you know, a five-year-old child coming home saying, and I'm, hopefully I'm not getting in trouble by saying this on, on, uh, on the air, but coming home and saying, you know, you know, a, can a woman have a penis? I mean, it's, you had a six-year-old child coming home from school asking his grandfather, um, you know, is it okay that I'm a boy? I mean, let's let kids be kids. What are we doing with this? It's, it's, it seems to be this indoctrination and, it, and it's, to me, our education system needs to be refocused on teaching kids how to think, not what to think. And quite frankly, parents should be fully engaged. And so because this has become so so divisive in our society, it's actually taking away from what it was supposed to be. It, I mean, originally, what we need to be looking at is, is moving our education system to a zero tolerance for bullying, a very strong anti-bullying, putting support in place for children, particularly children that, you know, are, are struggling with their identity and who they may be, um, making sure that we've got those supports, making sure that we can engage with parents on the issue, uh, and making sure that kids can feel safe at home as well. Uh, so those are what we should be focused on, not so much this type of stuff. And I, and I got to tell you, some of the books that are in the libraries in, in our schools, um, they're pornographic. And the language that's in there is so foul that we can't even use it in the legislature without the speaker you know, overruling us. And so if that's not okay for adults... If that's not okay for that, how is that okay to have that available for kids? So are you opposed to any kind of sex, sex education in school? Of course school? there needs to be a, a, you know, the an education program in school around that, both from a biological perspective as well as from an emotional perspective. But let's make sure that parents are, are engaged in part of it. But like I say, let's make sure that kids' innocence is protected. Hmm. Okay. So is your primary concern the early age or is it the... Um it's the, material. The, the material. It's the material, mm-hmm. right? It, it's it's gone. It's gone way too far, mm-hmm. and it's. So where do, where do you think parents f- fit into this? Like, um, the, because often the the pushback is, well, somebody has to teach these kids, and and parents are not monitoring their kids' social media, they aren't aren't engaged. Um, so how do you, how how do I you trust, begin to move that needle? I trust parents to do the right thing in terms of raising their kids. Any any parent wants to do the best they can for their child. 
And what government is saying is, you're not doing a good enough job. We're going to look after the kids. We're going to raise the kids. And I think that's wrong. So, I just think, I think that's wrong. I mean, that's this is what led to, you know, many other problems historically. Mm-hmm. You know, and so as a parent, if your nine-year-old daughter is holding it and running home from school to go to the bathroom because they don't feel safe in the bathrooms in a school anymore, mm-hmm. that's, what, what are we doing? What are we trying to achieve here? That's not right. Mm-hmm. So how do you, so just, okay, so then um, I, yeah, this is our last last uh, break here. So then I want to segue a little bit to, to business. Um and how do you, because one of the primary, I mean, small to medium businesses create most of the wealth in our province. How would the BC Conservative government increase the, uh, and maybe remove barriers and maybe help make it easier for young people to start a business? So one of the th- big things that, we're go- that we need to do, of course, is reducing those, those barriers, those burdens. And so there's tons of regulation that's in place. There's, there is, uh, you know, the tax burdens and, and structure that's in place. All of that needs to be cleaned up. But most importantly, uh, you have to create an environment where people want to invest. And right now, when you look at investing in British Columbia, mm-hmm. most people go, why am I, why would I invest here? I should invest in another jurisdiction because there's, it's too, difficult to actually do work here now. So how do you do that without just simply it being a uh, a gift to large corporations? So part of the part of what I'm looking at doing is is some very uh, very innovative approaches to uh, taxing to corporate taxing and that side of things. It's a big policy piece that I'm planning to roll out okay. uh, early into next year, uh, in terms of. But there's other there's other components that need to be looked at within government as well. And it's not about the remember the focus that we're trying to do is not about business. Uh, it's about the average everyday person and how we improve their quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure they've got good jobs. We want to make sure that companies can be successful so that they can increase wages uh, for for the people so that can improve the quality of life. So, But the focus really is always going to be on the individual, on what we need to be doing to improve their quality of life. Hmm. All right. So any... Um um, so what are some things that as you've, I mean, when you were kicked out of the BC United Party, right? It was the United Party. Um, and, and you were thinking about, okay, what do I do now? Uh, what was sort of the main thing that got you headed towards, you know what, I'm going to revitalize the BC Conservative Party? I, you know, I explored, I took some time in the fall. Um, you know, some people say, oh, this was all planned. No, it wasn't, right? This is a bit of an unexpected journey, I guess you could say for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took the time in the fall of 2022 uh, to really sort of weigh out what what to do, and I had some good conversations with my wife. I mean, uh, we're we're a team, right? We're partners in in what we do, and so I always want to make sure what I'm doing is you know she's good with. <clears throat> and I thought about it. Do I just retire? You know, I have been in politics a long time now. Um, do I stay as an independent? And as an independent, you can fight hard for your riding, but you can't change the big things. And I looked at it and I went, okay, no. There needs to be this change, and and what I'm seeing from the other three parties, whether it's the Green Party, the NDP, or the United Party, is they're all on the left side of center. They're all way over there in terms of these policies and approaches, and and they've lost the narrative, in my opinion, in terms of what people want uh, in this province. So I thought, okay, um, I don't want to just live with that. So that's what drove me to explore and, and actually do what I'm doing now with the Conservative Party. So what do you think is the main thing that sets you apart from those other parties? They're all on the left of center and they're not, and they're not focused on the individuals. They're not focused on, you know, standing for what's right. They're, they're trying to figure out where people are and then try to get in front of it, 
you know, in terms of a politician. And we're just going to stand on stand on our values, stand on the principles and the things that we think uh, we sh- we need to stand for, and we're going to ask people for support for those values. Mm-hmm. And as, instead of trying to figure out, you know, where people are at, like all the other traditional parties do. So, what's the danger in doing that? Well, the danger, of course, is if 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 you don't align with with people in the province, you don't get elected. Mm-hmm. And but I just think you know people are tired of the way politics has been done. They're looking for that different approach. They're looking for, you know, a party that's actually going to stand up and be willing to say what it needs to be said, saying the hard things. I mean, I hear that all the time from people is like, wow, you know, it's courageous for you to be able to stand up, but I'm glad you've done that because nobody else would. And I don't think that's wrong. Politicians should be able to stand up and fight for their values. And it's one of the reasons why I'm going to be asking every candidate that runs for the Conservative Party of BC to take a pledge to pledge that their number one priority will be their constituents, will be voicing their concerns, um, voting on voting on their behalf, um, and making sure that, you know, that is their focus. The party should be second. Okay. Well, that is a unique thing. Well, it's going to make it challenging in terms of as, as, a, as a political party to govern, uh, but that's what leadership is about, bringing people together to actually get things done, but also supporting people to be able to be, you know, those individuals that are fighting to be their representative for their riding. All right. Well, thank you so very much, John, for coming in. And uh, thank you for tolerating my uh, initial absence and Reg for covering for me. (laughs) No problem, Judy. I look forward to coming on again sometime soon. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, everybody will be back tomorrow. I'm actually host uh, subbing for Rez for the political panel. So we'll see you tomorrow morning. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Aaron Guess, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Kretz. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. Listen for a rebroadcast of today's program tonight at 10. And for past shows, check out the archives link at CFISFM.com. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at Yahoo.ca. This is 93.1 CFISFM Prince George, proudly supported by community-minded organizations like Trout Creek Collaborative Solutions, facilitating informed natural resource management decision-making.